And boom, we're back for another episode of AlphaCast. I'm Mike Winner, and I'm here as always with the maestro of the magic presence, Dr. Bear Paul Lando, coming to you live and direct from the great state of Jefferson, where freedom still reigns supreme. We are here with our buddy Chance Garten today. This is going to be a very fun AlphaCast, really an in-house chat almost, Bear. I feel like uh, we've been with Chance a number of times on his platform. It's great to have him here with us today. Very exciting. Uh, guess what? We got snow on the mountains two days ago. Last week, I was saying spring's here, and wow, this has been a long one. The grand solar minimum in full effect. However, Bear, it's uh, you're, you have some family coming to visit the farm, uh, I believe, later today. And guess what? They're bringing the SoCal vibes because it's going to be in the mid to high 70s all next week, supposedly. So I'm super pumped for that. Um, won't be chitter-chattering out in so. the ocean. um yeah i this is getting really old this is uh, a winter that's unusual and that it's just like going on and on and on and then they teach you with one good day of weather and then it's like back on so um we're looking forward to it i uh i got um rolls of uh hundreds and hundreds of feet of rolls of six gauge copper and i'm in the midst of uh making electroculture Coils around each of our Jalgulan uh, trellises, you know, the the main um, stakes that hold the trellises up and everything. So that's going to be kind of fun to see how it uh, produces compared to the other stuff. That'll be great. I want to come help out with that. Uh, and also, we did get a message recently asking about the big, uh, the Oregon busters we had talked about making the cannons. Uh, we should revisit that this summer. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, didn't get to that last summer, just so busy on the farm. But I think uh, that will be a great theme this uh, summer on the farm, electroculture, organ devices, uh, working with the true sciences to uh, help out the farm more. So um, got my favorite. Yeah. Well, Mitch we have, we have more. Right go here. ahead, uh, Chance. Oh, yeah, there you go. Little it's hockey. Custom there. job. Thanks to Mitch. He made it like with my birthstones and such. Sweet. Oh, dude. Well, hey, actually, Mike, why don't you jump in and get a start? Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say you bring up Mitch. The whole reason we have Mitch on the show, we've had him on twice, is because I discovered him through chance. So uh, when you had Mitch on years ago, uh, I was going through some of your old episodes, and you guys did this awesome cast with Mitch, and you guys went into some deep stuff. And I was like, this guy's just so cool. So uh, yeah, man, it's just I love how we help each other out, right? It's like it's the beautiful new media and it's, it's decentralized and it's just so cool. Like, you know, I think you put all of our friends shows together and we blow the communist news network out of the water. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, here we go. Um, our friend flat earth hippie says we need to turn bear up a bit. Yeah. I told you bear. I don't know what's going on here. Um, go to that roadcaster hmm. of yours and put it up a little. Don't you, uh, maybe you're on your, uh, on the board there. Yeah. Yeah. I know where it is. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm maxed. Okay. And I don't know what's going on today. Uh, okay. go ahead and get it started now to poke around with it. Okay. Okay. And, and guys keep in mind this live stream, uh, is, uh, you know, flexible here we're not but on the uh on the audio version of the podcast i always go in and bring i i record all the tracks separately and then i will go in and manually uh fix them for the audio podcast so if you guys uh, don't get too hung up on the audio here 
uh, it will be fixed for the for the audio version. So today, Chance Garden reclaiming the narrative. He is finally on AlphaCast. Uh, while our trusted institutions and legacy media effort tirelessly to establish the final cornerstone of a virtual panopticon to better manage those pesky herds, something else is happening. Decades of logical fallacies propagated under an ever-thinning altruistic veneer has become too difficult to swallow even for the uninitiated. Truth abhors a void, and a new warrior class has emerged to validate the metaphoric dictum that the emperor indeed has no clothes. On this alpha cast, we're excited to host Chance Garten, who can be counted amongst this new generation of intrepid seekers, daring to counter the mainstream narrative with classical logic corroborated by voluminous evidence and critical thought. Chance Garten is the host of the Interverse podcast, a show dedicated to empowering your perspective to help you stay in the flow of perpetual synchronicity. Chance is adept in a variety of areas, but most significantly interested in the technology of language. From teaching about the ways our body's innate intelligence is speaking to us to the mysteries of linguistics that show the essential unity of all spiritual traditions, Chance is a true logophile and proponent of using awareness and self-honesty as the primary means to building health, resilience, and success in all aspects of life. Chance is also an aura technician in the biofield tuning style, working with clients every week to help them discover and reclaim their power from limiting, belie <clears throat> limiting beliefs about themselves and unconscious expectations about life. We've actually had some Alpha Vedic folks in our community uh, uh, be blessed enough to work with Chance, and I've gotten rave reviews from your work, buddy. So uh, that is so cool. Bear, a uh, lot of fun topics today for sure. Uh, absolutely. Uh, forgive me, guys. I'm still fussing with my volume. Is it any better? You sound fine to me. I okay. can hear him. All right. Yeah, I can hear Maybe you. Maybe Hank just needs a uh, hearing aid. <laughs> as long as it's good for you, uh, it's good for me. Okay. Hey, uh, Chance, awesome to have you here, buddy. And this is, has been a long time coming, so a lot of fun stuff. I'd really like to get into the sound stuff, um, but uh, let's do a little uh, telling the folks more about yourself. And, you know, when I was writing up the inner, um, the intro for this episode, I, I brought up a term that uh, some people are familiar with. It's called a panopticon. And what it is, is something that was developed in the 1800s by what was his name? Jeremy Bentham, I think Bentham or, uh, so anyway, he, um, was really interested in creating the ultimate prison. So what he did was he created a circular prison where uh, the entire prison yard, the inmates were always in view uh, up above of guards circling around them. And uh, it, it, it was very effective because it really kept the, uh, the herds in line there. And, uh, you know, because they're just always under that watchful eye. So uh, they did something interesting next for the experiment. They actually started... Um, decreasing the number of guards slowly over time until there was only one guard, but they arranged it so that that one guard could be seen from everybody in the prison yard. And so now they had one gun, one guard controlling this vast prison population, and uh, it, it worked great. So the reason why I included it in the intro today is because that's exactly what's going on today. We have a virtual panopticon 
And uh, of course, we all think that the watchful eye is on us all the time. Well, not really. You know, they do not have the means and the power that they allude to. Yeah, they have a lot of good gadgets and all that kind of stuff, but we're smarter than them. We outnumber them like billions to one. So, you know, game over, but they have to keep us under the illusion that uh, we are under their control. You know, well, we just hired all these new IRS agents. We have deadly microbes. We have, you know, you name it. They throw the kitchen sink at you just to keep you under this paranoid delusion that, you know, you can't escape. Uh, but hey, too late. <laughs> we already have. And, uh, you know, Chance, after you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into all this, I'd like your comments about uh, how you think the the success of the virtual panopticon is doing and 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 what its longevity is from this point on but hey thanks for making time with us today it's really going to be fun talking to you oh it's totally my honor and pleasure to hang out with you guys and you know but I, i'm really excited that you brought up that subject of all things out the gate so in terms of a little bit about me my backstory it isn't that it's uninteresting but maybe not super relevant to the topics at hand. I started out as a pretty standard Midwestern, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant type. <laughs> Went to college because I was told I, was sh I should do that. I was very interested in journalism. Uh, got kicked out of journalism school for not really doing the actual work. Turned out that was a blessing. I wasn't put into the assembly line to become like a CNN, Fox News type, and instead sort of had to figure out my own way to pursue that type of interest if it was going to actually be something I cared about and got into the music festival scene. That was sort of what cracked my head open and was immediately thr like thrust into the realization that the true spiritual path is creativity and that to fill the void that I'd been feeling since I had been a, you know, come to come of age into adulthood, I really needed to be making stuff. So that turned into me making Sharpie doodles and uh, fun hat pins, learning graphic design techniques, and just sort of putting, you know, dipping my quill into various types of ink wells and seeing what kind of things come out from the scribbles. And eventually all the conversations that I had on that path of being really interested in creativity itself and like, what is it that allows somebody to set aside their fears, set aside the preconceived notions that they had about themselves or that what society thinks of them or if they're going to make it or not and pursue what feels like their authentic soul's calling, you know, fearlessly and successfully. That was really what made me start the podcast was I was trying to talk to enough people till somebody could tell me, how do you not need a normal job? <laughs> how do you make it as a creator? It turned out nobody could actually tell me the secret of that, but I was eventually in pursuing, continuing to create the, the show and sticking with it longer than I stuck with anything in my life. You know, at a certain point, the transition into being supported by that was pretty much fully complete. And big thanks to my audience and my supporters for helping me get there. And hopefully the things that we cover on the show help others eventually find that golden thread within themselves that gives them the courage to weave together some kind of paraglider and jump off of the cliff into the, you know, flow state of the uh, free fall of actual freedom. <laughs> you know what I mean? So 
Yeah. Um, but we got to talk about that panopticon thing. I'm happy to let you guys respond to what I just said though. <laughs> yeah. First. That just came to my head uh, yesterday. I don't know why. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll throw it in there. And, uh, but you know, it, it couldn't be more true for everything today. So what do you think about all that? Well, have you guys ever seen this show from the sixties? It was a BBC television series called the prisoner. Kev's know about that. Never saw it. Oh no. my gosh. Everybody listening. Take note of this. You can find it on YouTube for free. You might have to sit through some ads, but it's a 17-episode series written and directed and starred in by this guy, Patrick McGowan. And oh, it is... He, oh, yeah. I, 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 I'm, I am very familiar with that, and he's awesome. So sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. I Well, that I, show I is basically about that. what you're talking uh, about. It's this mm -hmm. village where he's abducted and taken to this village because they think he has like sensitive state secrets and they're trying to extract it out of him. They're trying to figure out why he quit being a spy and you know, they can't <laughs> understand that it's for his own moral compass that he had to quit, <laughs> but he won't give them anything. And that show is an amazing examination of the dynamics of the psychology of the crowd versus the individual and how really neither one can fully comprehend each other. And by the end of it, he's, you know, there's this realization, in my opinion, that eventually in a lo long enough timeline, the crowd, if you resist the crowd and you retain your individuality and you hold fast and you hold fast, eventually they either let you go or they ask you to be their boss. <laughs> and at which point, you know, it makes it really, in my opinion, opens up a, a larger question that like totally applies to modern society, which is why are all these surveillance things going on? Why is all this pressure from the collective continually, continually ramping up? And yeah, the, I heard Michael Tesserion talking about this. Uh, someone in the chat brought up Tesserion. He's why I checked it out. But the question, in my opinion, becomes like, why? what is this reality of multiplicity? of all these varying perspectives that are all carrying the same indivisible infinite divine spark. You know, my personal philosophy developed from working with others in a the tuning practice is that the life force energy that we carry in our body vessel is what you would call like the all mind and that it is it's beyond or before any notion of separation, division or multiplicity. And the life force energy itself is the self-existing creative dynamic intelligence animating spirit that gives all material reality its force to exist. So that inner divine spark is literally the whole, like that's the whole ocean, you know, you're the whole ocean in a drop type of idea. And so with the prisoner and the whole question of the panopticon, it's like, is this dynamic of the crowd versus the individual really some kind of divine exploration of God trying to figure out who God is. <laughs> and then when it gets to the point where, you know, we've built all the apparatus to watch everything and measure everything and get all the big data and see how every weird little uh, tangent of information correlates to everything else. Is that the point where the whole thing falls back apart because we got to decide whether or not we want to keep the game going, <laughs> you know, it's kind of esoteric. It's kind of heady, hard to maybe put into words, but that show will really get you feeling the, uh, the things I'm talking about, feeling this sort of mystical dance of the, uh, the, 
the pure unadulterated infinite self in its sort of bizarre conflict against against all the various things within it that vie for their separateness and their individuality. And so I think that's what's going on in society right now. I think we're at some pretty far Mm -hmm. advanced point in the road where maybe even some of those who have set up these systems and pulled strings to make it happen are actually doing so in not all of them, but like, you know, even talking about days and thems, right. That's not very helpful, but there is some, I think, essence of God trying to understand God, you know, self trying to understand self. And it breeds this type of conflict because at the end of the day, we're attempting to put parameters and definitions around and wrap our arms around something that is beyond description, beyond containers, beyond really fully knowing, right? Yeah. And in the meantime, they dazzle us with the bullshit to keep our eye off the ball of exactly what you're talking about, which is going into deep introspection to figure it out once and for all. Go ahead, Mike. Well, I was just going to say in terms of the individual versus collective, right? It's what's so empowering about that concept is that we can choose that immediately in our own existence right away. It's super empowering. Uh, and we choose our prison or not, right? I know, Chance, you're a big fan of that, where you're not a proponent of the idea of this is a prison planet or some sort of hellscape that we're forced into. <laughs> no, this is, we have the I choice. I like that idea, actually. Yeah, you do. You've been very vocal against pop Gnosticism and this idea that we are born into a, you know, some sort of soul trap. And then we could delve into that more because Bear and I are on the deep perspective that of the I am and the the whole you know universal uh, laws of uh, the life force and um, cause and effect, and we are the actors and the agents of our own reality. And that's not to say this is going to some sort of solipsism of uh you know separateness no we're all connected too right and that's the the grand i guess um tradition in all the great spiritual teachings is uh explaining how this really works and um there's this i was mentioning in the chat about prisoners that the stanford prison experiment are you guys familiar with that one uh in the 70s where they like had a bunch of college kids and they just gave them a, a, a fictional role in a fictional prison and within a week or two they had taken it so seriously it had become real to them and i think that's the power of narrative and the power uh, and uh, of how the fiction be- becomes a non-fiction and the sort of plasticity of reality that really you know as we've talked about with walter russell this is a mind generated reality and so it's so important for us to remember how we day to day in our thoughts uh affect our reality and as the individual and this can tie into what you do with the sound stuff is you know oftentimes people when i was a kid my you know um there would be a piece of trash and my mom would say you should pick up that piece of trash and i'm like well what is that going to do for the world there's thousands there's millions of pounds of of plastic in the ocean what's me picking up one piece of trash going to do to help the world and she would tell me you know that one that one act could cascade into a thousand other people seeing you or you know people seeing you and doing that and they do that and their four friends see them do that and that one act could cascade into a million people picking up a piece of trash and i think that's this idea of harmonics and resonance right that our thoughts can reach out and touch millions of other minds with one simple thought 
And that is so empowering and powerful of what the individual can do to affect the collective. Well, the, the concept that God um, teaches through evil is absolute nonsense. And um, if you understand really what I am means, it's just unadulterated, pure consciousness, consciousness that operates through the resonance of love, you know, in its highest sense. And in that state of consciousness, it would be impossible to, you know, if we take our individualized I am presence, it would be impossible for that level of consciousness to even entertain all the things we see down here on the ground. Because if it did, let alone created that kind of crap, it, it wouldn't be in that state of purity in the first place. So all these folks that, you know, think that, yeah, we're here to learn through the school of hard knocks or, oh, I'm just doing my karma all that kind of stuff. I mean, this goes back ages and it's just an excuse to stay in the prison. And as uh, you guys said, it's a choice. And uh, that's one of those false narratives, reducing our options. So go ahead, uh, Chance, you're about to say something. Oh, this is just so cool. Yeah, the the notion that God teaches through evil is interesting. But I first, I really like how many words for God or the deity in some way actually connect back to the idea of love and an example would be the uh name jove which is actually like philologically you can even derive the name jove out of or job out of the uh yad he vav he but that word <laughs> yov pronounced that way it looks like you're writing love you know if it starts with an i which the yad can be an i and then there's uh rama who is like Aroma, that's amor backwards. What I've learned though through tuning, like this, this maybe is a notion I already held in my mind, but that really there is such a thing as evil intent, right? There is such a thing as bad actors doing things uh, for the wrong reasons, causing harm mo mostly to themselves. But also at the end of the day, all things serve good or all things serve God. And you really get that out of the practice of working with people's, you know, repressed emotions, repressed traumas in their energy field. And you can see that in your own life, how even the things that were at the time seemed like the worst thing that ever happened to you, they lead you to a good place. So I don't think <laughs> with, with that realization, you can really look at the existence and, and of life and say, oh, this is some kind of a purely evil place, purely dark place. Whenever you chase it down to the end of the, the road, the people who bring forward the idea of the world being a pure louche factory, a soul prison and all that, what you, you ask them, well, like, what would be, what would mean you're out of the trap? And I've heard this response several times, which is like, if there's anything left to perceive, if there's any sense of I am left, then you're still in the illusion, you're still in the trap. And so the only logic that I can take from that is the goal would be pure obliteration, pure non-existence. And that is seemingly even some of the, you know, dark masters of the world would even would want that. Some of the destruction we see in the ecology attempts at genocide and all that, you know, it looks like somebody's trying to break the construct by just making it uninhabitable could be, but it, that's, 
at the end of the day, there's no, <laughs> it just comes down to simple logic, right? Existence exists. Non-existence doesn't exist. <laughs> like I look at it like in the, uh, the terms of the great Carl Jung, he had a, a small writing called Seven Sermons to the Dead, where like this is Gnosticism that is actually got wisdom to it, in my opinion. And in the Seven Sermons to the Dead, that's kind of where, like where it goes, is explaining how we have a reality through like through a philosophy type language that basically if you have a, a pleroma, all things combine with their opposites that thus nullify themselves or cancel each other out. Well, what doesn't cancel itself out would be power and non-power or existence and non-existence or effectiveness and non-ineffectiveness. You put those things together and ineffectiveness can't affect effectiveness. So there is this like just philosophically, it's not like you need this, but philosophically you can understand why we exist, why there is a sense of I am, why there is a, a reality to experience because it has to be that way. Like that's the only binary that, that reduces down to actual, you know, non nullification. <laughs> so everything is in this kind of dance of, uh, this yin and yang, a little more of one side, a little less of the other side, so that the one side can kind of have its sway temporarily. But the the what really at the end of the day where we're at, we're at that we're that dividing line, that curved line in the middle of the yin yang. That's what we want to surf. And that's where you know the question of the individual and the collective can kind of resolve to as well. That it's not that we need to be so individualistic that we become a hermit up in the mountains and never see society. Although that may be someone's path. That's fine too. <laughs> you have all of that within you. You can never really escape the other because everything about the other is in a way like something that you're carrying within yourself because it's all animated from that same pre-existing eternal life force, energy, divine spark, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Yep. And, um, you know, it's all about balance. And if we go to the, the progenitor forces of everything we're talking about, we're, we're talking about electricity uh, put in motion by consciousness and the nature of electricity. It's polarized in order to create the resonance that then creates the, the many out of one, you know, gives all the characteristics of all the myriads of experience and life forms that we see. But the, the, the main takeaway from that is that whenever an electricity, an electrical vector polarizes, then forever those polarities are seeking balance. That's just natural law. You can't stop it. So we, of course, have the, uh, been endowed uh, amongst all the four kingdoms of nature with the, the three primary rays, which is uh, will, wisdom, and active intelligence. Uh, no other kingdom in nature uh, is given those particular three attributes. And that means that we have volition and we can create as we will, but our creations have consequences. And a lot of the, the folks out there that are, you know, doing what we can just loosely say bad things, 
uh, I don't look at it as good and bad, but you know what I mean? Um, you know, they are now reaping what they've sown. So you can't escape yourself. I guess it's a, it's the moral of the story. For sure. For sure. And that's how I look at the idea of sin. I think this maybe is an Owen Benjamin idea that I picked up, but that sin is what makes you weaker or how I usually put it or how I understand it is that there's a, there's like a moral law baked into the universe that's observable in the sense that if you do something different than the way nature would do it, depending on how drastically aberrantly different it is from the way nature would do it, which is why we have the sky clock. It's why we have the fractal of the seasons that we can sense within ourselves. And even in our life path, you know, the seven ages of man and all that, that if you operate too aberrantly from what the process, the order of operations, it's math would be, you would experience the consequences of that in some kind of damage to your vessel, some kind of damage to your psyche, some kind of pain full experience that you have to go through. And that's like, that is the punishment of sin right there. The wages of sin is death. That whole idea. It's as simple as that. It's not like you're damned or judged forever to <laughs> experience some kind of separation from love or from truth. It's that there are immediate ramifications to doing things that are anti-life that are not in support of the life process. That's the meaning of life for me is the, is that life goes on, that we continue existing. The meaning of well, existence is to exist. You know, you're the you're the wordsmith etymol etymology guy. Sin, right in Spanish, without it just means, right? Like, not within, without, without the nature, without you know, you're getting away from what true nature is, and you can easily jump right back in. <laughs> it's not permanent. Um, one thing too, you said about the yin and the yang, and being in the middle of that S curve. And you said surfing that, right? Surfing that. Well, when you're actually surfing, that's the shape of your body when you're doing it right. You, your, your, your knees go like that, and then up, and and just because I'm trying to surf right these days, bear. <laughs> but you're crouched in that same shape, which is interesting. <laughs> but yeah, right on chance. Surfing Couldn't is agree the more. best analogy for everything. And if everybody <laughs> in the world surfed, uh, we would all ascend together someday. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's the beauty of uh, the fractal too. There's like, there, there's a lot of different types of surfing, not always just on a board with a water wave, but what you said about polarized electricity, seeking balance is super helpful to comprehend. This is, you know, why processes like the biofield tuning modality are so effective is because you can help someone see where they're holding this polarized energy and how and why that's actually bringing to you experiences that reflect that polarization and kind of like amplify it. It's actually an attempt to balance the equation, but it's resistance to it that leaves the imbalance there or even sometimes amplifies it, makes it more dissonant, more drastic. So, you know, this was a good lesson from music and sky for me that Eileen taught us in her uh, Sunday. It was her birthday. She did her sonic alchemy thing where she had us all doing different vocalizations that correlate to different parts of the body and you'd start to do one and you'd be like, man, I got a lot of wobble here. My voice is kind of shaky. It feels weak or it doesn't feel good. It feels dissonant. And we've been trained a lot to, and maybe there's just something innate to us that causes this, but also society has really held onto this philosophy for a long time that you repress the symptom. You know, you, you avoid the dissonance at all costs. If you're not strong, 
at something, you, you avoid doing it, you know, which is how you avoid getting stronger. But really, especially when it comes to our body, things that the body does that feel like symptomatic or dissonant are always a process to help you come to a level of coherence and harmony. So you have to go into the dissonance, go through the dissonance. Eileen teaching us that in her sonic alchemy thing was great because if you keep making the vocalization, you will find that it eventually finds a level of like equilibrium harmony. And then that constitutes some type of energizing or improvement in the correlating part of the body. But so like with this polarized energy or electricity in your actual biofield, which is your six foot bubble space, uh, the strongest and most dramatically effective in a, in a negative sense, polarized energy is the stuff that's furthest away from you and thus kind of furthest away from your awareness. And that would mean it would represent stuff that is from very early in life. You know, like tangentially speaking, the whole idea of psychic vampirism, energy vampirism, even that those phrases sound like kind of boogeyman descriptors, although they are real thing. That's a real thing. I think the reason why those things are possible, that type of energetic vampirism is because actually for a baby, an infant, first seven years of life in particular, their field is wide open and has to absorb energy from the parents and from the environment just to maintain its homeostasis, just to survive. You know, I've got a new nephew. He's a couple months old and he's just continually sucking energy right out of my sister, you know, and that's fine. It's all well and good. But what I find with, with clients that are having like a repetitious negative experience coming to them in life, for example, somebody having, uh, the experience of feeling betrayed by those closest to them repeatedly, like a, a spouse that cheats on them, friends that knew about it, or in some way even like helped her do it and didn't, uh, you know, come clean to the individual or other forms of betrayal that just cyclically happens. Like every couple of years, my whole life falls apart because everybody in it just turns on me and hurts me. <laughs> you know, why would that happen as a pattern? And, you know, like an ex example of why that could be that is being unnoticed by the person would be to ask the question of like, okay, what was it like when mom and dad got pregnant with you? And this is the type of thing that in biofield tuning, I can pick up on pretty quickly. And it's one of the first things I look for is like, what was the situation for baby in the womb and right after being born? So when I, you know, in this example, what might bring about the experience of repeated betrayal, possibly. Well, what if mom and dad got pregnant like dramatically too young and the pregnancy was not wanted? There's a ton of hesitancy or even like a really bad attitude about it. Well, then baby is being born into an environment and even having their physical body built out of a like a mindset, a mentality of resistance and not wanting, not being wanted. So that pattern of being sensitive to feeling unwanted is a polarization of their electricity that's in their energy field and they don't know it or see it. It happened before they even had the ability to form memories. So it's difficult to, re to recognize for them that they've actually been living life with the expectation of being unwanted or the expectation of being betrayed because the two, you know, their best friends and their closest people in their life, mom and dad, metaphorically speaking, we're betraying them when they're a baby by not wanting them, not fully supporting them, maybe not giving them, you know, the boob and giving them formula or any number of possible things that can go awry 
not the way that nature would do it, so to speak. <laughs> so you help them connect the dots to that early, early life experience. And they realize, oh yeah, I actually know from the family lore that mom and dad were like 17 when they got pregnant, they weren't ready at all. And it's not like to judge mom and dad for that. What 17 year olds are really ready to have a baby. It's just to come clean with the awareness of what it was like then, how that influences the pattern. And then you can break the pattern because you no longer are holding the polarized electricity of unconsciously believing or expecting to be betrayed at any moment by those closest to you. You realize, oh, that was then. And I was holding that belief because that was all I knew when I was that age. That was the formative experience. Now I know better. And it's like, I always tell clients, GI Joe says knowing is half the battle, but in, in tuning and energy medicine, knowing is basically the whole battle. And that can break the cycle. It can break the pattern. You know, like people develop all kinds of physical ailments just from a situation like that feeling, expecting to be betrayed. A lot of times they'll wind up with like a weight problem because that physical extra layer is an attempt to armor them or uh, lipoma on the lower back. I've seen that before where somebody was literally afraid of being stabbed in the back. So they developed this fatty lump deposit on their back, actually like really in the sacral region <clears throat> is where I see that happen most often. And yeah, the, like you, you find out that everything that seemingly goes awry with the body is a message from the body about what type of polarization you're holding in your belief system, in your expectations, in your consciousness, even beyond what you're aware of, but into the unconscious. And then everything the body does that seems dissonant is actually doing you a favor, trying to help show you what you believe about yourself, who you think you are. And then you get to make a different choice. And that's what it all comes down to is that we always have the ability to make a choice. That's the nature of spirit is free will. It's just a matter of knowing where you are making a choice so that you can change your mind if you weren't aware of it. And, uh, you know, in bioterrain medicine, um, symptoms or what we think of as disease is actually the healing mechanism. And if it wasn't for those symptoms, it would be really impossible to know what's going on and, and address it. You know, you said so many great things here. Uh, you know, in my work that so much went back to that, you know, from the birth trauma to the conception trauma and so forth. But, you know, conception, imagine two people that were in an elevated state of consciousness and also, you know, agreeing to bring in a new soul uh, in a certain manner, free of dissonance. Uh, that is what I believe you would call the immaculate conception. And then, of course, um, that's kind of uh, skewed in ways to make it, you know, fit different religious narratives. But I believe that's what they were really talking about there. So um, you open the door a little bit to uh, sound and everything as well. You know, an old martial arts trick is um, when I first uh, traversed into the internal arts from more of the hard fighting styles, I started working with different kinds of uh, teachers from the old country. And so it required a lot of really going inward meditative practices, and but also in a, in a very active way in that you would have to connect with all your different energy centers in your body up and down the, the spine in both directions. And the way you would find them, uh, because, you know, when you're just starting, you're using your imagination and you're trying to feel things, trying to locate. But what I was taught is to create sounds and with your mind on a particular place, like say maybe on the pineal gland, uh, 
if you want to find where that is, say, because you want to learn how to do embryonic breathing and it requires bringing in, you know, and connecting the, the light to the pineal and then to the heart at the same time with rhythmic breathing, uh, what you really need to do is to focus on the pineal and then hum in different octaves until you just literally feel that area resonating. And it's amazing how, um, you know, and this is, I think, the original biofeedback low textile, and it really works. And that is, uh, you know, you find exactly where it is. And it might be a little bit off of where you were imagining it, but once you find it, you find it. Then when you go ahead and do the more advanced practices, once you're really located all these spots and you can move energy around from point to point, uh, then periodically, you know, you know, well, not periodically, but you're always using other technologies with it, visualizations of light, using sound, all sorts of things. But then when you go back and locate that spot, you'll find uh, after a little bit of practice that it takes a little bit of intonation difference from the first time around that you took it, which means now you're literally resonating different at those spots. And it's kind of proof of the pudding that you're changing the resonance in those energy centers for the better, typically. So um, you want to take off from there maybe and get a little bit into the sound therapies that you're involved with? Well, yeah, that all that is awesome. The power that you have with the voice to, like, I, I kind of have a special, <laughs> I feel like the throat is extra special as an energy center because it can express and influence all the other parts of the entire body through itself, you know? So that's maybe where we get this idea of the word and the logos and the spoken, speaking things into creation. But what I, what I find really awesome about energy medicine in general, and why I particularly resonated with the biofield anatomy hypothesis that Eileen McCusick puts forward, you can get her book, uh, tuning the human biofield, <clears throat> tuning the human biofield, electric body, electric health. Those couple of books are really, really great. What, what I've come to understand from that is again, back to this notion of the life force energy that animates the body being this sort of inseparable, indivisible, all knowing it's got the, the energy of the entire cosmos <laughs> is it, you know, it means that if we have the language to speak to our body, we can find out anything we need to know, basically. And at the at the very least, you know, if you don't want to push that notion out to like far-reaching Akashic information about unprovable things, past, present, and future, that's fine. But at the very least, your body, the energy of your body knows everything about you. And that's important. And why the biofield anatomy hypothesis is so particularly useful, even if you weren't going to put it into practice with tuning forks or with working with clients, is that we have with through that we have a language that we can speak to our bodies directly, or more, more like we can translate what our body is speaking to us. So the biofield anatomy hypothesis, I know you guys have had Eileen on before, but what that contains is sort of a roadmap of not just your energy field and what stuck energy in different parts of your energy field might mean, but also, and this is not new to Eileen, this is an ancient idea, in particular through the, through the Eastern medicine, that every organ has a particular signature to it, that an emotional signature to it, that the liver can hold anger, for example, or 
<laughs> you know, and then with the, we get into more specifics, like the left ankle holding onto anxiety or fear. Uh, and, and really like fear is sort of the available to be held onto in almost any part of your field. Fear has a lot of different possibilities, right? But what is useful is that if you can just get maybe one of Eileen's books or uh, I, I share this on my telegram. Sometimes if people ask for it, I'll share it anytime. I, I made a chart of the biofield. Uh, it's like just a few slides that cover off all the chakra centers. If you know what every part of the body and part of the energy field correlates to then when you get some kind of an injury or a dissonance, you can start to reflect like, well, what does that mean? What am I holding onto there? Right. And like an example that came up recently, and Eileen actually helped me with this. I was talking to Alec. You guys know Alec Zek, the Way Forward podcast. Oh, yeah. Great guy. He, he came on my show. And after the show, I was reflecting on, you know, the conversation. And in my outro, I started talking about how at the park earlier that day, I had been throwing the ball for my dog. And I chased the ball down, trying to beat the dog to it. And I tried to kick the ball away from the dog. And I ended up kicking the dog in the head and hurting my right foot pretty bad. <laughs> the dog was fine, tough skull, but I was reflecting in this outro, like, what does it mean? You know, I know the right foot generally kind of refers to us trusting the path that we're on and where we're going. And the feet are a little more mysterious than that. They're basically a microcosm of the whole rest of the body and energy field. So they can hold on to it. Like it's more complicated maybe than just that one generalization, but that generalization does apply. So I'm wondering, like, I like where I'm going. What's the path I'm on? What, like, that I'm not trusting. And then uh, Eileen pointed out, well, just right before you told that story in your outro, you'd been mentioning how impressed you are with how big Alex's whole operation is, and how big the business is that he's doing, and how many people he's reaching. And you know, then you said, or I said something like, "Well, my show is kind of small, but we're doing all right." <laughs> And then I told the story about kicking my dog and she's like, you were kicking yourself, your dog representing yourself over not having as big of a presence or as big of a, an operation or podcast as Alec has. And that's why you hurt your foot. And I, and it clicked right there. I was like, oh, that's it. <laughs> and so my foot wasn't really hurting anymore. That example maybe isn't as, uh, as miraculous, but there've been times where say, uh, ankles hurting or shoulder, shoulder hurting or something like that. And I connect it to whatever is going on with me and people I'm having some kind of relational difficulty with. And I come clear with myself about what I'm, what I'm limiting in the situation and what I need to, you know, realize to be a better person about it and not get stuck on it. And then wherever the, the injury or the soreness is that will just get alleviated from there, you know, and to the, like when I first started using sound, I got, the first thing I did was I got the sonic slider tuning fork. It is awesome. I'd been having shoulder problems that I was attributing to rock climbing. And I thought, well, I just hurt my shoulder climbing. That's why I can't raise my arm above my head. And it hurt really bad. And I kept, you know, taking weeks and a month off at a time from climbing and it wasn't getting better. The injury had been lingering for five or six months. I got the sonic slider and within days, the injury was resolved. I was no longer, you know, limited and I could do all the exercises again. But what I didn't realize was that within a few months of applying the slider to my left shoulder, where 
I was having, well, both shoulders really where it had to do with my ability to say no and set boundaries uh, and maybe even like resist kind of energy vampirism type of stuff. And also with my feeling, um, resolving my victimization of feeling, you know, assaulted by other people's bad vibes and negative energy and not being, you know, not being a victim to that anymore, not playing that story of how, you know, every uh, vampire needs a narcissist or not a narcissist. Every narcissist needs a, a, a victim empath, right? <laughs> and I was playing the role of the victim empath, not realizing it. I started using the slider on my shoulder. The injuries resolved but within a few like short months from there, I wind up divorced. <laughs> I had no idea that was coming. I thought everything was hunky dory. I was lying to myself about all kinds of stuff. And then all the things I was hiding from myself came clear into the light of day. And I realized, oh, I got to do something different. This is not healthy or helpful for me or her and everything, you know, not to blame her anymore and not to make the partner I was with a monster in my mind that I was a victim to. And instead just let both be good people. And so that's, you know, the kind of things that happen when you resolve the actual root cause of the injury or the dissonance is that your life is going to rearrange itself around that too if you really resolved it and it's always going to be a good thing, even if it's like a dark night of the soul that you kind of have to face and go through, you were already in the dark night of the soul. You were just ignoring it. And when you finally face it, yeah, that's hard. It takes some courage, maybe some tears, maybe punch a wall, but you're going to get through the other side and everything's going to, you know, all, all things serve good in the end. Right. I can't tell you how many times I've seen that where people come in and the type of people I saw you, she had a, uh, a severe diagnosis and, um, you know, you always start with people where they're at and what they can hear. And that's with a little bit of practice, you know, you learn how to do that. But, uh, by the time the, the folks that successfully worked through their physical malady, by the time they were there, they had different jobs, different partners, uh, everything in their life, uh, changed. I had one real traumatic time where this uh, guy and his wife came and uh, he was diagnosed with colon cancer and it was kind of, you know, last leg sort of thing. And so we just did the first interview and I'm putting out some concepts and things for him, but, but later, and he ended up doing fine and he's well to this day. And that was many years ago, but uh, he told me later that when he left our clinic, you know, they just walked, uh, out to their car had a huge fight because he was very receptive to the information. The uh, wife was very threatened. And I mean, it, it took about five minutes for him to just open to certain sort certain other realms to blow his marriage up. So yeah, you do see that. And the body is, uh, you know, really needs to be looked at more metaphorically. I think in the healing trades, it's, it's good to understand anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, all those things. And they come in handy but you really have to do, uh, you know, develop that knack to, um, you know, qualitatively look back at a larger perspective and just see, okay, what, like you say, what does the right foot represent? And in that case, it's just the body's just right in your face telling you exactly what's going on. It doesn't take a genius to figure it out. We just don't think in those terms. Right. And that's why that's a perfect example of how language is really a technology. And why it's so important that we sort of recognize it as such. In fact, I love to bring this up, but the word technology actually means language. <laughs> Before it meant consumer electronics and computers and iPhones and whatnot, the, uh, the old definition of the word technology referred to technical jargon, terms of art, 
as doctors and lawyers know all about. And so whenever we are able to upgrade the technology that we're communicating with, we can get more specific, we can get more uh, clear on, you know, precision of language. I feel like that is such a helpful and important thing. And it's not that there isn't room for wiggle. I mean, I'm all about the green language, the being able to look at words through the poetic and the prosaic, the left brain and the right brain, the dictionary definition and the expanded multiplicity of possible meanings. Because in that sense, you know, there is an amazing mystical thing going on with language all the time where even what we're saying reflects that inner deeper truth more than we realize it does. If we can start playing with the words or what is being said to us, I think what a one of the big shifts in my life that got me on the right foot on the right direction was when I started looking at the events of my life, the way that you would interpret a dream symbolically. And I realized, Oh man, it actually works that way. (laughs) You know, this isn't just sort of like things happening to me. You can, I really love Michael Wan. You guys know Michael Wan, right? He, He used to talk about all the time what, like whether or not you're living a a life where the outer world is directing your inner world or your inner world is directing your outer world. And it's always the latter. That's the truth, but you can pretend that it's the other way around. And it's the difference between like the victor victim type of mentality that it's life happening to me or am I happening to life? And then it is always kind of like this middle of the road, middle of the yin yang thing where it's like both at the same time. But the key is that you never lose sight of your agency to choose in the matter. And yeah, like on the subject of language and the technology of language, that's my favorite thing. If you can, maybe we can get into that for a little while and, and like the whole other side of my particularly intense passions, which would be about philology and linguistics and mythology and the religious systems and how we can, uh, you know, reclaim some very powerful heritage by recognizing that a lot of what we've been told about our ancestors and about history is 100% uh, (laughs) a limiting story, limiting belief, basically like lie. You know, I don't even think it's that helpful to go around pointing out like liar, 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 pants on fire, but it is helpful to to recognize the ways we've been lying to ourselves. And anything that is limiting our conception of what our potential is, is usually going to be in the category of a falsehood. So, um, you guys have anything in particular you want to say before maybe we jump into that topic? No, I, I feel like I'd I'm... love for you to go deeper into that, but just a little um, a little segue into that. I really got involved in language in my study of lawfare, and then of course you study uh, you learn about color of law, how you know languages ha- are bastardized in different ways to control and deceive, and um, uh, yeah, words uh, that we repeat every day. You were actually putting creative forces out into the ethers that are working against us and we don't even know it. And of course that's the name of the game, but uh, please uh, take it uh, deeper. Cause I know that's really your forte. And, so, and a chance real quick too. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the sort of, you know, is there a perennial source where this all emanates from that is consistent. We've talked behind the scenes and ideas about, you know, a, consolidated single unified source for (laughs) where 
all of the current traditions and language comes from. Just curious uh, if you've done any more deep dives into that idea and, uh, and have any theories there. I'm definitely always deep diving into that idea. <laughs> <laughs> and we like it does precision language when talking about this stuff is helpful because there's a lot of potential feelings to be hurt <laughs> and, you know, special sense of specialness that you could accidentally trample on. And I don't want to do that to anybody when we do get into syncretism and showing the, the roots that seem to be the same for all the different, even parts of the world. And which is too big of a topic to really flesh out properly. Cause it's all about the minute details adding up to a big picture, just like, individual stars making a constellation. In fact, the constellations are a big part of the story. So when we're talking about like a, a event, like really boiling it down to a unified source where all of the things come from, that source is actually nature. So that, you know, if we have any kind of system that is representing truth, it's representing truth in a sort of singular way in the sense that how nature operates in the order that it operates, how an embryo goes from, you know, the single cell zygote to a fully fledged human being, there is a sort of mathematical precise order to that. Now, in that there's also room for wiggle. Like one of the things I, I've come to realize is that nature doesn't exactly operate in a type of uniform, consistent precision, but that there's like some wobble to it. <laughs> there's room for variation, you know, but it's within a schema. There is a sort of general template that things build out from. And with that, you know, when you realize that it actually opens all kinds of possibilities up, like maybe the reason why the, the astronomer priests have always consistently gotten things wrong, like the synodic periods of different planets or the larger cycles of time as they measure them, or even trying to figure out how long an actual solar year is, maybe there's a little bit of wobble with that. Maybe what we consider the 365.25 uh, day solar year is kind of just like an average. It's usually around that. <laughs> like, no, are we out there measuring it to know? Can we trust the people that claim to be measuring that to tell us what's up? I wonder, I wonder if maybe there's even some wiggle and some wobble in things like uh, measured time and the like that whole Kronos concept, which is fun to, to ponder well, maybe as well. Maybe the, maybe those mechanisms uh, also are developing uh, themselves, you know, and maybe operating different like time. I think a lot of us would agree is operating very differently than it did just a few short years ago. So now we're talking about going back eons. We're talking about a different state of consciousness, a different uh, way of just relating to our realm. And uh, if we, unless we pretend that we aren't uh, participants in creating all that, uh, it's going to be a reflection of our consciousness at the same time. So nothing's cast in stone. I definitely agree with that. And I, I will say that you, you, you know, the word is consciousness that is primary. I would say that's where the, all the emanations come from the singular consciousness that we all come from. And, um, you know, I, yeah, I've done a lot of research in my days going, trying to, you know, hark back. Was it Atlantis? Was it, is it Tartaria? Is there a single unified place that these traditions come from? And, I've kind of come down to the fact that it is individual reincarnated consciousness of certain actors that have been able to keep the perennial tradition alive. And um, that is to me right now where I'm kind of at. 
And uh, so once again, the power of the individual and our ability to affect the whole uh, seems very apparent when you look at, you know, like perennial philosophy, like how one guy like Plato could affect so much uh, of of the, the thinking. And then where does that come from? Who is that? Was that it really even a person or was that, it was, that, you know, uh, so yeah, there's a lot to be unfolded because we know, and I know you, you're into this chance is that most of history, it seems to be a made up. Uh, and um, it's uh, very, I think it's very important times right now that we're, we're asking these, in, these important questions. And I think word smithing is a great way to start to find out who is behind this or what's behind this and what is some of the truth uh, of how we are, where we are now. (laughs) Yeah. So I think that uh, if there is such a thing as like original peoples, if we weren't just always here and then a sort of sine wave of a rise and fall of collectivism versus individualism, which I think is very likely, you know, I, I, again, back to that philosophy of existence is what exists and there's never non-existence, I don't really buy the whole allegory of an in the beginning. And I think that's why when you boil down a lot of the mythos of the different parts of the world, you get this uh, perennial destruction and regeneration story. You know, Noah and the Ark is the base template for that. But let's, you know, I have a few fun quotes here. I'm just going to start with First of all, in all nations, in all times, there's been a secret religion in all nations and in all times, the fact has been denied. (laughs) That's a a great bombshell quote from Godfrey Higgins. I'll probably have a couple (laughs) more quotes from him, actually, while we're talking. He's one of my favorite old school researchers. I really like the old school researchers as in like the, uh, you know, before 1850, because after that point is where you start to see the ramp up of mythology characters becoming more just like entertainment uh, protagonists. <laughs> and that's one of the big problems with trying to do research in today's internet is like you go to Google some, you know, esoteric phrase or the name of a particular mythological hero and you just get video games and TV shows and movies. Well, and what was invented around that time uh, in 18 was the novel. You have Dickens, you have, you know, this whole, the, the narrative being created, uh, you know, through the writing where before it was not, you know, yeah, you had Milton and you had some sort of narratives that were along that sort of structure, but not really like the modern model came, a novel came out around that time, which was now directing people into this sort of narrative of fiction and we see that emanate out into now how you read a lot of history is historical novels. Like that's my son's, the youngest son's favorite thing to read. So yeah, it's it, interesting. Exactly. And so what I'm really interested in helping us move away from is supernaturalism, actually. And that's not to say that there aren't things that you can experience especially subjective things that are beyond explanation that you don't know what the laws of nature are that explain that. But when, like, I think that it's a, obviously we see this with like the, the whole earth shape deal, the whole NASA cosmology. If you can cause people to accept things that go against their senses, then you're just easily more easily able to get them to buy all kinds of stuff. You know, that first denial of reality is where, there's a, a big issue. And so with a lot of 
ancient cultures history or ancient history of, of various cultures, it's all boiling down to like they're descended from one of the sons of Noah is usually what it is or their version of Noah. And there's, there's always this mythos that is masquerading as history, the further back you go. And I think that's actually probably uh, done to obscure some kind of like genocidal takeovers or <laughs> something along those lines. I want to read though, this is a longer quote, but this is such like, li listen, listen closely guys. This is a really good one. This is from Anacalypsis by Godfrey Higgins. Of the sayings of the wise men, there was not one probably more wise than that of the celebrated know thyself. And probably there was not one to which so little regard has been paid. It is to the want of attention to this principle that I attribute most of the absurdities with which the wise and learned, perhaps in all ages, may be reproached. Man has forgotten or been ignorant that his faculties are limited. He has failed to mark the line of demarcation beyond which his knowledge could not extend. Instead of applying his mind to objects cognizable by his senses, he has attempted subjects above the reach of the human mind and has lost and bewildered himself in the mazes of metaphysics. He has not known or has not attended to what has been so clearly proved by Locke that no idea can be received except through the medium of the senses. He has endeavored to form ideas without attending to this principle, and as might well be expected, he has run into the greatest absurdities, the necessary consequence of such imprudence. So <laughs> that's a, a big one. You know, it's a yeah. big bombshell of a statement right there. I think that this is for, like when we see the modern um, new age stuff that goes on where people are kind of doing a pick and choose of their, their belief system. Like I like this God and this is, I believe this is literally real, but your thing is definitely fake, you know, and all of that, but it's not really through the medium of the senses. Maybe they're having subjective experiences. Like I don't deny that somebody could meet Jesus or meet Hermes or meet Odin in a mystical way, in an internal way, in a meditative state, in a psychedelic experience, in a near-death experience, all of that. I'm not throwing out the value of people's subjective experiences or even the lessons that they get out of those for their life. But when it comes to trying to lay those down into some kind of a dogma that you need everybody else to believe, there's where we run into problems that are going to cause us to butt heads, you know? And so that's what I think is important about that quote from Higgins right there. And then it especially pairs nicely with the notion of hyper-reality that Jean Baudrillard is so famous for, that the media represents world that is more real than reality we can experience. People lose the ability to distinguish between reality and fantasy. They begin to engage with the fantasy without realizing what it really is. They seek happiness and fulfillment through the simulacra of reality, which is the media, and avoid contact and interaction with the real world. We're seeing this more rampantly than ever where like what he's saying there, in my opinion, my interpretation of that is if you are inculcated with a, a belief system uh, uh, that is based in fiction and, you know, think about the news, right? People are watching CNN, war, murder, death, <laughs> disease, plague, everything. And uh, then they look outside 
and it's just birds chirping in the sun shining, well, it's very <laughs> easy for them to then be led to believe that everything's a simulation and fake because their overlay on reality, their belief system is dissonant to what the actual reality is presenting to them. So what feels oh, that, I was talking to them to is James, to then go live in fiction, live in TV shows, live in video games. I was just talking to James Tunney with this about yesterday. We did a phenomenal uh, interview about transhumanism and AI and everything uh, for the end of COVID uh, summit, which everyone check out endofcovid.com. Uh, <laughs> Bear Lando is featuring that and your, and your boy, Alex Zek, you're mentioning chance. Uh, but uh that's the that's the whole deal, right? Like, what is reality to most? You know, what is the quote unquote mainstream? It's not you going out and talking to your neighbor and being outside and holding hands and kumbaya with your, you know, around a barbecue. It, it's when people talk about what the reality is, it's what the TV's saying, what the newspapers are saying, what you're seeing on TikTok. It's all a simulacrum. And so that's why I think people fall into the trap of saying that it's a simulation. It's a digital simulation. You know, Bear and I take the perspective that consciousness simulates reality, as in Walter Russell explains, through sort of, you know, the electrical uh, facets of, of the mind. Uh, but that's totally different than this idea of some sort of like AI generated digital simulation. Um, Bear can speak Once, to that a little um... bit. Uh, can you hear me? I switched mics. Is that any different? Yeah, you sound good to me. Okay. Um, yeah, now what we're talking about. Yeah, it's one uh, One idea of simulation is deterministic, and the other is, uh, no, we have uh, volition to be co-creators. So that's all the difference in the world. That what, That's what Walter Russell brought into it. And everything we're talking about always has to go back to that uh, concept of sound. and. Um, you know, since we're talking about creating the, the simulation or whatever you think this thing is, there is a mechanism, as you were saying there, Chance. And sound, uh, you know, is the water ether. It's the third layer down, you know, from the, the, the fire hydrogen, the, the nitrogen air, and then water is where the elements get fixed. And in that water ether, it was also known to uh, old school alchemists as the sound ether because that is where, you know, the water would be the conduit for the resonance that was, uh, you know, initiated in the first two ethers. And then that water element being, or the sound ether being the transmitting utility uh, for that resonance to the ground, the carbon, the earth element, uh, which is the negative pole that then allowed the final fixation and precipitation of experience and matter. So sound is, you know, I, I just want to keep bringing it back to that. It's a huge, huge thing. It's the creative mechanism. And uh, we're also talking about linguistics. Well, uh, it's also predicated on the ability of, uh, or the unique ability of mankind to articulate specific sounds uh, that are also abstract symbols for what those sounds mean. And now you're pairing you know, both sides of the polarity, you're creating an, elect an external resonance and also using the other qualitative side to imagine what that sound means. So that is a very powerful creative element. That's why I'm really interested in Eileen's sonic anatomy work that she's been doing lately. You know, the different vocalizations that correlate to different parts of the body that that could really... <laughs> You know, we may be getting close to some sort of 
you know, primary language, there is something about it. Like all babies don't start out by saying stuff like ma and ga and like these primal guttural sounds. And, you know, maybe that's part of why there is a similarity from languages in different regions. But what I think it is, is that whoever were some of the first people to go around in boats and doing seafaring commerce, they had to come up with the astro, the uh, astronomy for navigation. And to simplify their ability to retain that information, maybe they, that's why they codified it into astrotheology. I have a more far out idea about that too, though, that, you know, okay, so that's where written languages that have so much similarity are coming from is that somebody's taking these alphabets around to do, uh, to do trade. Like uh, in, in the East, for example, what I've, what I've read about uh, the Chinese, like the Chinese characters that a lot of different language speakers and dialects in different countries, even though they may have a different word for dog, they will look at the character, the Chinese symbol character that means dog, and they will all know that it means a dog, even though they'll have a different word for it. So like, how does that happen? You were going to say dinner. Sorry. (laughs) Well, anyway, (laughs) Uh, it's hilarious. My dog just cringed in the background there. (laughs) Poor dog. So there's a similar thing going on, in my opinion, in like around the Mediterranean, where you see the the original Greek alphabet having 16 or 17 letters. If you count the digamma, the uh, Welsh or Irish original alphabet having the same uh, 17 letters in the same order, the Hebrew Phoenician uh, alphabet, same letters in the same order. There's more than that. Actually, they correlate to trees. Each letter correlates to a tree. Uh, and is even named after one. You know, I think that there's legs behind the theory that the first alphabet or the first writing was actually leaves that they were that, that the priests were leaving messages for each other by arranging leaves in a certain order, and that that would mean nothing to someone that just came across it. But it's like you know, the first cipher, the first code, something like that. But the what I think is interesting about the concept of astrotheology. Well, a lot of things, right? That the entire mythos of all religions and and spiritual systems is encoded in the stars, which it is demonstrably so, is like, where does that come from? I like to try to throw myself back in time and imagine who were these people that first codified such a system? Because it is all encompassing. Really, it's vast. It's incredible. Like, can you imagine trying to look up at all the little points of light in the sky and come up with characters and stories that describe an allegory, exactly all the processes of nature and the order in which those processes occur. And also the moral truths that are, you know, referable to those processes of nature and all the different other things like navigation and (laughs) everything that encompasses that it's like, it's crazy to imagine. So I wonder if in this sort of cycle of the uh, you know the develop the rise of the collective, and then the opposite polarity of the development of the individual, and that sort of pendulum swing that goes on. If maybe there you know in some far reaches of the past there was a point where the individual was so strong, and that the the all knowing capacity of our inner self 
our life force energy was accessible to the individual through the external by the mirror that is the sky. Because when you look up at the sky, you can, I mean, yeah, you can only see half of the dome at once as it, you know, rotates around. But through the course of a year, you basically have access, and especially like in a zoomed out way, you can see it all at once. You can see the, it's like reflective of the all. You're seeing the all when you look up there. You're seeing the within. And that was their almanac. Without. That was their almanac in their calendar and their info systems and their their true internet and how they exactly dude yeah the internet it's like that's the yeah. organic internet yeah. that in some way through the sharing of stories and through the looking up there like maybe that's where maybe they're we're doing something similar to what we do with the internet using the well, and each above. star each star is an individual node of the individual consciousness. It's funny how you can like buy a star for someone, right? <laughs> like, you know, one of those supposed suns way out, you know, millions of light years away. Uh, but uh, yeah, this idea that each one of those is a node connecting the information between the holographic information, right? That is instantaneous and forever. Um, that makes a lot of sense that you would check in every night and check in what your day is going to be the next day and what the year is looking like. And uh, also probably how you could ping off those to know what someone else is doing halfway on the other side of the planet immediately and instantaneously. Um, and then, you know, of course, they're doing everything in their power, as we were talking with Marty Leeds a couple of weeks ago, to block that. So with light pollution, and now you've got all these low-orbiting balloons everywhere that are confusing the sky uh, as much as it can with the technological overlay. So it's- They don't, um, even, yeah. <laughs> What's they that, don't even need that stuff. They've got everybody looking down at their phones. Yep. That's where I got, that's where this idea of like the organic internet in the, the sky came from was I, I was like, it, it dawned on me at one point that there's a co direct correlation seemingly between the- it, prevalence of light pollution or like the difficulty of actually seeing the night sky as light pollution has gone up and the sky has become less visible. So our, our like technology and externalization of yeah. our information has gone up as well. You know, we've gone further and further into externalizing our knowledge, you know, putting it down in books, putting it into digital hard drives and all that, which I don't think is even innately bad. You look at what nature does and it, do, it seems like preservation and sending forward into time wisdom has always been like part of nature's game. If DNA operates in any way as described, that's basically what it is. It's like a record message in a bottle being sent forward in the future. And one of the things I really enjoy about uh, <laughs> the syncretism of the, the world mythologies and systems is all these versions of the savior God or the, the mediator character, the Mercury or Jesus figure being called the logos or the word of God, uh, the God of eloquence, many different types of titles that are, that are a twist on that, that the concept of the mediator or savior, symbolic of many things, there's a lot of different allegories going on at once. It's multidimensional in that way. But one of the things it symbolizes is the knowledge of alphabets. Like that's what Odin is. He gets the runes from the tree. That's what Jesus, the word of God is. That's what the Irish version of Hercules, who is Agmios, 
he's literally he's depicted with golden chains coming from his mouth going to the ears of his followers fascinating stuff and i think that was like because the uh, the only literate people in that time period in the earlier time periods were the astronomer priest class that the the whole idea of the logos was that this god was a symbol of the knowledge of alphabets because that's how you transmit wisdom from one man to another man from one time to another time it's the preserver you know creator destroyer preserver that whole trinity that's repeated over and over again in all the different systems that the savior deity is the word <laughs> is literally language written language because that's what preserves wisdom i think that that's a, a really yeah, useful and, way to look at it and what's google calling themselves now alphabet because they think that there there's you go. somehow the this the replacing it with the simulacrum um barry you're i could tell you're about to say something well, it just started storming. Uh, no, really I'm good. I'm just, here. I'm just taking this all in here. I was uh, actually keeping a little bit of an eye on the chat group too. We got a chat some fuego on. today. The chat is yeah. on fire. Yeah. Um. So People you know, are what's about the, gematria? Um, well, I was just gonna actually go into a little bit of this because the other aspect of the universal language, which ties into sound, is number, is math, right? And um. Uh, actually, somebody in the on the Odyssey chat uh, was asking early on because I know chat. And how ironic, Chance, that your name's Chance, uh, when I know Tell me about it. you are not a um, believer <laughs> in this idea of the sort of everything's just by chance, chaos theory. You understand that there's a grand sort of lattice work of consciousness that, uh, you know, synchronicities happen for a reason. We actually create our own synchronicities. You've told this great story about in your music um, festival days, how when you were really tapped in with your friends, you didn't need to text or anything. You could like mentally know where each one was and you could just show up at the right place. And I've had that experience myself. And yeah, I just call it following my heart compass. I would just pick a direction and walk and I would run into who I was looking for, like yes. in a straight line. <laughs> <laughs> you can really do that. It helps to believe that you can, though. Yes, yes, indeed. So what's your take on sort of the synchronicity of number and like seeing for me, I see certain numbers all the time in my life that keep popping up. Um, and then how does number play into the alphabet? What's so to some level, that meaning that you're talking about, like seeing certain numbers, it has a lot to do with your relationship to that number. So when it pops up, you know, what it makes you feel in that moment or what you think it means, that message is for you and you get to interpret that. So I don't think there's necessarily like a hard and fast rule about it. In terms of gematria as a, that's a wide ranging subject, right? <laughs> Our mutual friend, Marty, he's very vocal about like not enjoying a lot of the gematria people online. And gematria bros, there's gematria a lot of gematria bros. bros out there. I understand where he's coming from, but actually there's one that I do like a lot. Uh, Derek Takuri, the gematronator. He's a good dude. I think, you know, maybe Marty just hasn't given him a chance or met him in, in person <laughs> or watched uh, enough of his videos. So I like his approach because all he's doing is what he would call like looking for riddles and looking for connections. And then mostly not, and maybe he has put forward conclusions in the past that were a little um, subjective, but maybe presented objectively. Nobody's perfect. Right. But I think he's a good guy. And what I like about his whole thing on his Gematronator channel is how he's pointing out that a lot of this synchronicity between numbers in say, for example, there's like a, a news story that day and 
the name of the person in the story equals a certain number, but then there's like a celebrity that dies the same day and then the numbers match and yada, yada, yada. And there's like all these connections, right? He's talking about it being a, an organic and an organic gematria thing going on, which I think is true. I think it's very feasible to work with, like operate with the belief that God speaks to us through letters and numbers and all that, that synchronicity is not the exception. It's the rule. And the further that you dig and you pry and you look, the more synchronicity you're going to find. And if someone's belief about that is that you're just making connections where they aren't there, that's fine too. It's all good. But if somebody out there is like really into solving gematria riddles and it makes them feel the presence of the creator and the synchronicity in the realm in them, in them, you know, like I'm all for that. That's cool, man. I think that's cool. Uh, in terms of gematria as an actual sort of part of the priestly system from ancient times, in my opinion, this goes back to the fact that this astronomer priest class, they're also the navigator mercantile class as well, like these Phoenicians or whoever we want to call them. I like how Dylan Sakoshio refers to them as the holy sailors because it's, you know, it's both. They're the priests and they're the, the mariners. So whenever you're dealing with different regions that have different dialects of speech or different sort of uh, historical mythological traditions and et cetera, it really helps for keeping consistency in your own system or being able to communicate with maybe priests of one region and another region to encode numerical values into the words, the particularly important words. I mean, Marty demonstrates it all day that the Bible is chock full of numerical significance. Also, math is an access point to transcendental, to the transcendental truths of reality. That's a fact. Like, pi is going to be a mystery <laughs> forever. That's it's amazing. And that, that's a big part of it as well. But like, you can... In my opinion, you, if you know a few of the specific numbers that go down, uh, you, you'll be able to point out the consistency in the priestcraft system and show the sameness between systems by knowing those kind of key certain numbers. Like the number 600, 650, or 608 is often the value of the savior deity, the, the sun god deity. And that's a, a reference to what was believed to be one of the, like, sort of like a deacon of a processional age, like a, a one third of a processional age in a previous time when they had a different, you know, the one thing the priest class is often consistent about is being wrong in terms of what they think the greater cycles of time actually yeah. shake out to be. <laughs> but so like Bacchus or Jesus and, and et cetera, a lot of, in a lot of versions of their naming, uh, how they're named and the gematria of those names are going to shake out to a number that connects to this cycle of 608 or cycle of 600 or 650, depending on the when and the where and what they thought of those cycles. It was called the, the Nero's cycle. And there's another phrase, you look into the, the Nero's, you're not going to be able to Google and find out about that particular time cycle. But it's, uh, it's similar to like the idea of the yugas. It's like a unit of time. And that's one thing that I think the, the real value or one of the real big values in Gematria is being able to show that one system over in this part of the world is the same priest system as over here because of the numbers line up. And they did that intentionally so that they could communicate with each other and be consistent with their systems too. Yeah. It's just a code language they've chosen. It's just by their um, 
you know, uh, consensus. It's just a consensus-based code language. You know, when you read the, um, the whole Billy Shears book, uh, Memoirs of Billy Shears, for those that are in the Paul is Dead scene, uh, they're really into that stuff. And it's, there's a lot of connections there that really make it seem like that whole conspiracy is real. And that is the language that they choose to use. Doesn't mean it needs to be some sort of divine language. It could just be something the, the as you say, the priest class uh, <clears throat> is all about. And they've been about for a long, long time. And the uh, controllers also like to stage events and um, and do things to fabricate those timelines and and all the theories out there and the different schools of thought just to prove them out. And of course, uh, I think one thing one group that's really getting played, uh, you know, is uh, maybe the evangelical Christians. You know, whereas uh, you know they just say, okay, that proves that. Uh, certain predicted events, prophecies uh, were indeed the word of God when in fact they're orchestrated to align with that and not the other way around. Very, yeah, that's a very good point. Um, what I, the word that I like to apply to that is uh, euharimism, I believe is the proper word. It's where somebody who may have been an actual historical character, their, the history of their story, the narrative is sort of shuffled around to fit the doctrine of the the savior <laughs> like like cyrus of persia uh, he when you look into the book of isaiah from the bible and the what what a lot of like sort of mainstream churchian type uh christian scientists would say oh here's isaiah make predicting the prophecy of uh jesus coming in the future but it even specifically says in Isaiah, they're talking about Cyrus. <laughs> There's a, so one way that you can know that you're looking at this system, which I will, you know, I haven't said this yet, but I will say when I talk about the priest system, A, there's been no greater scourge upon mankind than the priest craft. <laughs> but B, it's also rooted in and maybe originating from an earlier time where this is based on nature. It's based on truth that has all kinds of beautiful resonance and value as a philosophy. So, you know, treating it as philosophy and uh, avenue to self-knowledge and knowledge about nature, very valuable, very great. Treating it as like a dogmatic system that allows you to, sorry, my dogs are barking and started storming like crazy here. <laughs> anyway, like, tr you know, the way that it gets into a, a dogmatic, my thing is special and your thing is not is where it causes a lot of harm. And I, you know, I see that all the time. There might be people who identify with, uh, <laughs> identify with Odinism and they have a lot of good things to say. And then, but they're bashing on Christians for being close-minded and dogmatic, but then you showed them the similarity of their system to the Christian system at its root. And then they act exactly like the people that they are mad at, mad at, <laughs> you know, and it's not like I'm taking anything away from the culture's individual uh, morality, individual history, individual perspective, all that is still there. But that if any system, religious system is reflective of truth, then it's reflective of nature and nature is what it is. And so the value in all of them is deriving from the same place. And I, I have no problem with that. But uh, what was the question I was on? <laughs> Where was well, I going? Well, the, uh, go ahead. Well, you go there. 
Well, oh, I was I just going to say, gonna say, you know, of course, um, everything that does follow nature was then immediately uh, demonized as being paganism. And uh, but in fact, a lot of the um, cultures that had the new form of Christianity, they just adapted it to their existing paganistic belief systems. So you see uh, in Latin cultures, which I come from, you know, uh, uh, Catholicism uh, having a whole different connotation, a whole different relevance as compared to maybe Catholicism practiced by Anglo-Saxons. So there's a really, really useful researcher from the past who spent time in jails in the gale for his transgression against the, you know, the papacy and all that Reverend Robert Taylor, excellent work. He says that the, that paganism and Christianity are about as different as six and half a dozen <laughs> <laughs> different ways of saying the same thing. Yep. So anyway, uh, what I was getting at though, when I was bringing up like the prophecies of Isaiah referring to Cyrus, but then later retroactively being applied to Jesus, uh, there's scarcely this is a higgins quote there's scarcely one history perhaps not one which does not contain more religious fable than truth that's what a euharimism is when you apply religious fable to a history and so whenever he higgins also says there's scarcely a name in very ancient history either sacred or profane which was not an adopted or second name or a name given with a reference to the supposed quality or office of its owner so think, for example, of like how Jesus is called the Christ. It's like a title or Julius Caesar. It's a title. Augustus, his successor is given the title of Caesar. In fact, all the 12 Caesars correlate to the 12 stations of the Zodiac. And this is a way that you can kind of detect ancient history masquerading as uh, ma <laughs> astrotheology masquerading as ancient history is when the the name of the famous figure. Cause that's what like the way history is presented to us is it's all about the stories of these important men and the wars they fought. So like Alexander it, uh, is a perfect example. Alexander, the great Al Iskander has also got Isa in his name, the Arabic name for the Christ. Whenever you can also detect like uh, a name of a philosophical concept in the character like Jonah and the whale is another good one. This one's an obvious myth, of course, but Jonah is Yuna, the Hebrew word for, for dove. And it also sounds like Yoni. There's a definite correlation between the idea of the dove and the Yoni in the mythos. And in particular, you see that when in the, the Ark or Arga storyline in whoever's culture it is, the boat, the Ark, which represents the feminine generative principle combined with the masculine, the hull of the boat is the whole, and the mast is the lingam or the phallus, that once the floodwaters are receding, the flood hero lets out a dove. This happens in all kinds of cultures. It's specifically a dove most of the time, except in the Mexican, the ancient Mexican version of the uh, story, it's a hummingbird that comes back. But regardless, this fact that Jonah, who's swallowed by a whale, which is a version of the Ark, actually, his name means dove, <laughs> then you, you can see that that's more of like a title. And so every time you see a new name bestowed like, like that, you're looking at this type of uh, pre-system.
And interestingly, it's even been applied to humanity at large. And that's one of the things that's important, like about studying this stuff to know that the legal legalese black magic type of deal, <laughs> you know, the straw man story that we're all subjected to is actually uh, like a version of it's like all, it's like causing human beings to live out a the fiction of mythology as as if it was who they really were, you know, identifying with the character rather than the I am and all that. And um, the arc is also depicted in the um, the sign of cancer, which is a water element <clears throat> and uh, the crab that carries its offspring, its eggs, uh, you know, on its belly as it crawls around through the water element. And uh, I'm, I'm more than convinced that a lot of the biblical corollaries are really uh, uh, treaties in astrophysiology. Uh, and not just astrotheology, because the Zodiac Man. Really, um, yeah, it really uh, outlines how we unfold embryologically. If you fo follow the science round through the seasons counterclockwise, and then going in the uh, opposite direction, as Steiner did, it shows how on a grander scale, it depicts the whole evolution of mankind, uh, you know, through the ages. And he, he does a great job as far as correlating each sign with uh, the coming of a new age and so forth. So um, it's really about, uh, I think, building the temple, rebuilding the temple, uh, telling us uh, the physics of biochemistry so that we can have the knowledge to create the arc that then is capable of receiving the resonance, the full resonance unadulterated of spirit so that we can be fully realized and if you think about it, what other reason for would there be for us to embody in the first place if it wasn't for that realization process? And then doesn't it make sense at all these uh, these stories uh, as well as interpretations of the constellations so, and so forth uh, work perfectly in the physiological unfolding and the spiritual evolution of man? Um that's and also, and also yeah, bear yeah. on the, yeah. I was oh, just going to say also go bear ahead, on, on, on the farm as well, biodynamic farming mm -hmm. and everything. So it relates directly to literally how plant life unfolds, how all, all life. Exactly. And, and we could go deep into every single species and, and um, correlate it with an aspect of ourselves. And, you know, because we are the final and fourth kingdom that embody all the other kingdoms. And we therefore possess all those attributes. So, um, boy, I don't know where uh, where to go from here. Well, I was just going to say uh, one more we... one more thing too on the arc on this whole idea of the archetype as the individual and and sort of the um, narrative of of you know who these characters are, say in the Bible and how they relate to the stars. And it's like what's inspiring about it is, is that we all embody that same arch in you know a specific archetype in that we all. Are infinite in, in in terms of being what we want to be and in our own story in our own if you want biblical tale that it's yes it's fictional in a way but it's also just the nature of reality and that's why i like hermetics because yes the priest class can go either way they can be the dark magicians or they can be the bringers of light and i'm not talking luciferian here so much but 
Um, but you know what I mean? Like in that firm understanding of what Bear was saying about the, the, the our own body and our own, how we dwell in it and what our consciousness is and how, what roles we play sort of in these archetypes or in these characters in our lives. So we often want to project it to like a Moses or a Noah, but really it's us. It's who we are individually and what we're doing in our own hero's journey and, and what we create and how like literally overnight, we can shift that narrative into whatever archetype we want it to be. So these are just guiding lights and, in the same way that the stars are. Yeah, Bear. And every culture has different archetypes. In, in uh, you know, Native American, we have the animal archetypes, your animal totem. And, and uh, there's just such amazing truth um, when you understand that from a perspective of resonance. So Chance, in the time left here, uh, speaking of residents, do you want to tell us a little bit about your sound work? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, people can find out more about that through my website, interversepodcast.com slash sound dash healing is a good page where I've collected a few of my favorite videos where I sort of give a presentation on the subject. But if somebody was interested in getting with me on a session, that page would lead them to my email address and how to donate to do that. And what you'd expect in a session with me is we're going to get on the call. Um, you'll maybe send me a few pieces of preliminary information before we start so that I can be thinking about those things. If you have a certain health condition or a certain type of uh, emotional situation that you know you want to work on, or if you want it to be more of an exploratory deal, that's 100% fine in some ways. That's all, that's great because I think a, a lot of people come to the a, a ceremony with me wanting to experience the party trick is what I call it. The party trick of some guy in another state or another country waving around tuning forks in his living room and then telling you stuff about your life and when it happened. Because <laughs> it is... It's like I, there's a most of my life I wouldn't have even thought that was possible. So I get it. And I really like that. The, the party trick is a really cool part of it because you get the, you know, as a client, you get the experiential knowing, not just a sort of intellectual belief, but the knowing that separation and distance are really more of a mental concept. Not that they have no validity, but that they're not the hard and fast reality. The hard and fast reality is that the energy that animates all of us is one big interconnected whole and it can never be divided or separate. You know, you're already carrying the template of wholeness around with you. And it's just a matter of rearranging the beliefs that are limiting you from experiencing that wholeness in a more complete way. So we get into uh, the ceremony. We'll talk for a few minutes. We'll open the sacred space. We'll set our intentions. And then I, I have like a table set up with, I call it the voodoo doll, but it's for good. I use a lot of selenite crystals to sort of lay out a skeleton of a selenite skeleton. <laughs> Never like there's probably a pun in there that I could create some neologism, but I have crystals and candles correlating to each of the major energy centers of the body. And we'll begin after we get to know each other how with uh, a dowsing that I, I just use classic L rods to measure the energy field left, right, up, down, forward, back. And I take notes of that. And so I know going in where some of the like particular coordinates are of stuck energy, or at the very least, I know what areas to rule out. And that helps speed it up because 
Otherwise you might be in for like a two or three hour session where I'm exploring every corner of your, you know, six foot by six foot circle of spherical bubble space. <laughs> and that, although that would be very therapeutic and great, it's, it would be time consuming. So with the process of the dowsing, we're able to condense down to like the very most helpful bottlenecks to address. And then even if we don't get every little bit of stuck energy in an hour, or you can actually, you can do a longer extended session as well. If you want to sign up for that, I don't really like to do sessions more than an hour and a half hour, 45 minutes. Cause I think it's a lot to process <laughs> to just like move all of the vibe at once. But anyway, we will get in there an hour, I think is a great place to shoot for. And, uh, as I'm fine, looking for any potential, like stagnant chi, I'll also be explaining, what I think might be the, the nature of that stuck energy, the emotional signature of it, the age of, around where it might've occurred, and then helping them connect the dots to the type of repetitious experiences or stuckness that they're ha having in life to where that pattern may be originated in the belief that it originated in, helping them see how certain types of emotional energy they've been holding themselves back from expressing is actually uh, not helpful. Like, one of the most common things you get with people in this type of space and community is the repression of anger energy. And like the, a story that is so common that I hear in people's field, like I hear it in their field is I don't get angry, angry people suck. <laughs> but then what that turns into is like sort of a timid, uh, not able to get what you want in life type of experience, because this is the deal with all the polarities of energy that we interpret as negative that energy is just energy. And so like the color red, just because it might in one sense, influence sort of like aggression or, or anger or fear doesn't mean that it doesn't also represent vital life force and grounding and safety and security and all that. Right. So anger is a good example where if you're interpreting a certain feeling in your body as anger and that anger is bad, you're also closing the door potentially to healthy aggression, healthy assertiveness. And the same goes with, you know, the feeling of anxiety. You might be interpreting a certain feeling in your body as when I feel that it means I'm anxious, but you could actually take that exact same energy and say, when I feel that it means I'm excited. <laughs> so when I feel the energy in my body that people would often identify with anxiety and then label themselves as such what it means to me typically is that I'm, I want to do a good job. Like before coming on a show like this, if I were to be feeling a bit of that jittery energy that people will associate with nervousness to me, that means my body's giving me a gift of excitement around this event that's coming up. And it's a message from body to channel that energy into some kind of preparation. So like for me, what I did was I channeled that energy of being excited about coming on here into doing some Qigong and I used it and I moved with it. Or maybe I would channel that into preparing some notes or some slides, depending on the situation. So it's all about shifting of perspective. The energy is the energy. Anxiety energy is not anxiety energy by default. It's just energy. It could also be excitement. You can use it or you can be, you know, you can get get it stuck and then it gets stagnant and then it gets all rotten. <laughs> so that's what I help people do in the session is see where 
they're blocking a certain color of their spectrum because they've associated it with something negative, some label that's not helpful. And then ideally getting to a zero balance in as many of those areas as possible, like integrating and releasing any stuck sadness or for example, so that then whenever they feel that, that signature again, they can express it a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. And then instead of coming out as like exploding bottled up anger, for example, it's just an in the moment, little assertion of, no, I don't want that. No, I don't want that. And then it's not toxic. It's not explosive. It's just like correcting, you know, it's steering your ship. You're just making a little adjustment to the rudder, which is what the energy is always for to begin with. It's just when it gets all, you know, your, your ship gets overloaded with the cargo of unspent or unprocessed energy is where the ship starts taking on water and it starts getting harder to stay afloat on the, you know, the seas of consciousness, right? It's just, uh, it's a tonal field is all we're talking about. And um, anger is a great move up the ladder from depression. Depression, I mean, if you want to take one, uh, emotional term that really sucks, it would be depression because you're just sitting there and, um, you know, ineffectual. Uh, it helps sometimes when you're in that kind of state to get a little pissed off. And then it moves the energy up. And then the, the key is, is not to keep in your solar plexus, but to keep moving it up the rungs there. Uh, there's that old saying that has a lot of truth. It's better to be pissed off than pissed on. So, um, you know, it's about keeping the energy moving. And, you know, what you're talking about as far as uh, at a distance, it's actually working the way you're describing is better at a distance. Because if you look at I agree, a lot it's of better at a distance. things that you're, yeah, the, the things you're speaking on, like just take emotions, they do not exist on the physical plane. Again, they are on the water plane. And if you know how to uh, harness that water plane, through radiesthesia, through sound work, and so forth. Now you've got a direct conduit into that. That's how uh, homeopathy works. You know, you're getting rid of all the physical uh, constituents and just leaving an imprint of the resonance. And now that resonance can go right to the energetic with less physical impediment. So there's a lot of great wisdom to it. I, I find it curious, you know, we have no problem sitting here. What, you're in Missouri, Mike, uh, you know, you live over the mountain range from me. And here we're all talking to each other. We've even got living pictures and sound and everything else. And what's happening? We're transmitting frequencies. The only thing is, is it's the crudest level of electronic frequencies. Now, all we're talking about with your healing work is going into that next level of uh, electronic refinement and being able to go through the ethers. And if anybody has a hard time believing you know that this is possible then you just lacking a little bit of information about the how the etheric mechanisms work in the first place and the more you know the more you can be specific as far as what you want to do on that plane no different than everything you do every day in the physical plane you have a very methodical way of going about things because you know that's how you get things done it's the same thing on any other plane or subplane of those planes uh, yeah, exactly. What I like about the whole process and why I'm so grateful to have learned from Eileen and been able to develop my own sort of methodology based on how she talks about it is that like, what's so wonderful about tuning is that it is a very 
consistent and almost like mechanical process. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm doing essentially the same thing every time. And it also, you know, for me on the practitioner end, it gets easier the more experience I get because it's like the metaphor I use is we're all, we, we all may be unique individuals, right? But just like a painting, for example, there may be a painting of a landscape and then a portrait and an abstract and all these different varied expressions, but they're all painted with the same seven colors, uh, roughly, right? Unless you count white and black as colors. So that's maybe what makes it so uh, kind of mechanical, but it's a consistent thing. It, it works the same way every time, pretty much. Occasionally, there's some special stuff that jumps out, like uh, maybe the ancestral river will get active and you'll be able to uh, realize that there's something further back in terms of the patterning that it's a family lineage deal that they inherited that occasionally comes up. There's some differences, mm. but yeah, it's a, it's a very consistent experience. And that's one of the things that I, I love about it. Well, it's uh, do you have sort of a synesthesia? I always say that word wrong. Synesthesia effect going on? Do you see color at all? Are you familiar with what that is? It's where people, certain people, hear color, or they'll have a sound, or they'll see a color, and they'll have a they actually connect a specific tone or a key to that color. I don't really have synesthesia. My wife does, which is really mm -hmm. cool. I say I don't have synesthesia. Actually, my my take on synesthesia is that it's the default and that we've kind of lost track of it, yep. that like there's only really one sense or perception of reality. And then our like our body isn't picking up signals from all the different parts of the body and then routing them to a central point and then creating a cohered singular experience of the flow of reality. The flow of reality as we touch it is singular. And then our body does this splitting of the, you know, the light through the prism type of deal so that we can have different angles at which to process it. Right. So I think in that sense, everybody is synesthetic, but it's just that we've gotten really good at filtering things into different categories <laughs> and that's how we mostly operate. But I don't have too much of a specific experience of synesthesia and not when tuning really, but I do have a kind of interesting way of detecting the blocked or stagnant chi in the field, yeah. which is that as like I'm sweeping the fork through whatever it is I'm looking for, mm -hmm. whenever I come, whenever I touch what it is I'm looking for, I get a signal in my head where like my ears will pop or I'll feel like, feel like a pressure differential in my eardrums. It's really so it's, very so much it's physiological. It's physiological. It is. And actually like, if I wanted to, I could do a tuning with no forks. Because if I just put my hand out and I sweep my hand through a space and I'm looking for, say, the edge of someone's energy field, like the outer boundary, when my hand touches that spot, just in midair, my ears will pop. Kind of like being on a plane going up and your ears pop, but without the discomfort or the loss of hearing. It's just like a little click. It's like an electrical thing. So I, I rely on that pretty heavily. <laughs> Once I realized that my body was talking to me that way, I was like, sweet. Thanks body. Keep doing that. That's really helpful. I think it came about from Qigong maybe that doing Qigong regularly led my body to have that sort of electrical sensitivity that it could then talk to me through very, very helpful. So once one difference between me and a lot of people who practice tuning is I'm not so much 
listening for a pitch change in the fork that sometimes comes up, but it's more like I'm operating on a yes or no, <laughs> yes or no. And when it's yes, I get the hit in my head and I go from there. Uh, but with that, there's also like things pop into my awareness. Like I might hit the stuck energy and then all of a sudden um, it like the knowing will just pop in my head that, oh, this grief is about a pet dying or something. And it'll just, sometimes the knowing will just come in like that. And that was maybe the biggest hurdle of getting proficient with tuning was learning to trust those messages and not be afraid to just put it out there. Like, I think this is what it is because ends up that like, even in the rare case that it ends up being wrong, they will tell me what it is actually. And then they've still made a connection to something about their story that is relevant. And so even if I said the exact totally wrong thing, if they know what the right thing is, we still did. We still did it. <laughs> that was still the intended goal. So uh, that's a big part of it is trusting the inner voice. You know, it's a very, maybe it's where Neptune is in my chart or whatever, but it's quite mysterious to me, the the mechanism by which those strange messages just pop well, into my head and the knowing occurs. But I think we all can do it in, in our own way. It's about, it's about practice. And that's why they call the healing arts a practice. And as the years go on, if you stick with it, um, it's uh, you're amazed at how much, you know, that you would have thought maybe when you first started would be impossible. It's not just commonplace. I trained with a, a person, um, a very uh, gifted osteopath from France, and I witnessed him doing amazing things. And I just thought that you know, he was just gifted in that way, but I spent a good number of years with him going through his advanced training. And at the end of it, you know, you could, with your hands, you could grade mental plane energy, emotional energy. You could, uh, you know, for our final exam, we had to, you know, they gave us a person who was diagnosed with a certain thing, verified with radiographs and things is bring someone in, not telling you anything about it. And then you find it just pinpoint every single time. And, um, you know, as far as the senses, yeah, it, you're right. There's one sense only, but our 12 senses, and there are actually 12, are nothing but extensions from the constellations. So those constellations, uh, you know, as our senses filter through those different resonant, resonant fields, then it allows us to pick up different characteristics. So rather than um, so much, not so much differentiating, like, oh, I'm hearing something, now I'm tasting something. You're really uh, becoming more artistic, uh, more specific in being able to turn on one of those 12 senses for whatever you want to perceive with whatever bandwidth you want to access. So that's the way it's supposed to be. But then at the same time, you can coalesce them all and use any singular um, focus and pick it all up at the same time. And it makes perfect sense, even though your brain would not be able to correlate 12 things at once on another level. Uh, you know, I've learned to trust that more than anything I see on a lab test or anything else. And, and I got to the point in my work in later years that people came in, I, I didn't even want to know, you know, they bring in all their tests and stuff from other doctors. I don't even want to know that shit. Um, you know, it's just, you know, you're right there. You're going to tell me everything I need to know. And I had my own systematic way of going about it. And, um, you know, anybody can develop this if you stick with it long enough, if you have kind of a knack for it and, and it's way more accurate than anything, uh, a CAT scan can pick up because a CAT scan can only pick up one crude level of reality 
Whereas if you're operating on all cylinders, you're seeing the whole picture all at once. And also you can prioritize because you can see things and then maybe go after them, you know, with whatever modality you're using. But the most important thing is sequentially uh, doing things in the order like any tradesman knows how to do. Because by the time maybe you think there's priority over here in one part of the body, say, um, you know, if you know how to really prioritize and do things in sequence, well, it's going to fix itself before you even get to it. So it really cuts down on your work at the same time. That definitely applies to tuning where just, I haven't, I've developed a pretty good knack for <laughs> my wife can also attest to this. I actually have this weird innate draw to touch people where they hurt. You know, I just kind of like poke and prod unconsciously at the most sensitive spot <laughs> accidentally. So that is kind of turned into with tuning where I tend to, I often will find whatever the biggest deal stuck energy, oldest story is like the first place I go. And the advantage to that is that oftentimes other areas of stuck energy that are related to that story will resolve themselves. You know, I may have measured that something is up in the solar plexus chakra, but the, the real heart of the issue was a heart chakra thing. I go find it in the heart chakra and then go to look like, and then I address the solar plexus later. I'm like, Oh, that stuck energy has already moved and resolved. So I liken it to also how, if you increase the flow current and water level of a river, then stuff that is stuck to the bottom floor of the river might just spontaneously get picked up and carried out to the Delta. That totally applies with tuning where there's a downstream effect and even places that we didn't specifically tune can find improvement if we deal with the bottleneck areas. And so I often will just go straight to the bottleneck. And uh, I'd say the last thing, the last comment I'd have about sound work is every modality is sound work, whether using a tuning fork, whether you're using your hands and uh, doing sacral cranial work, whether you're doing acupuncture, you're all affecting the sound resonance in different ways. So sound is where it's at. It's the, uh, the sound ether is where matter precipitates, where experience precipitates. It's where consciousness meets the road. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> been really, been really uh, awesome to get your take on these things, Dr. Lando. Quite a pleasure. Well, I hope well, you two can life. hang out in person. It'd be great uh, this summer at Music and Sky. I know, Chance, we've talked about you coming back. Let's keep that keep that uh, message going here. I'd love to figure out how to get you back because uh, uh, last year, Chance was our roaming uh, sound tuning dude, which was awesome with the forks of oblivion. I was just there. walking around with this thing like... <laughs> Whoa. Are you ready? Just random people. Uh, they're getting in it line. It looks like Thor there. <laughs> it is. It's Where'd huge. you get that one? This Where's... comes from a store called Earth or Tuned Earth. I believe the website is earthtuned.com, but the company is Tuned Earth. I don't know why it's reversed like that, but it is. Uh, this one is a, let's see. Now I'm blanking on the actual frequency somehow. Oh, it's written on here. 384, right? It's a throat. It's a G oh. note. Yeah, I've so, never I really seen one that's uh, the most that important dude. bottleneck to uncork is the throat. So I really like 
I went through yeah. this. I got to say thank you to my community. The reason I even have this fork is because on my 33rd birthday, which was last year, my community pitched in and, uh, average of like, th- I think like 33 people donated a, like $33, $33 each or something. <laughs> I don't know. Cause this is kind of an expensive tool and yeah, they crowdfunded that for me. Illuminati confirmed for sure. I was just going to hit Can the you button. Tell me the name of that again. Oh, the, the website is, or the, the company is earth tuned. Yeah. I recommend these tools. There's it's so awesome. Like, I think I follow them on Instagram or something. There's like a dude, he has like six, he has like six of those around him all at this tune and he's puts them in the ground and he's like sitting in between them and just like vibrating. Um, it's yeah. incredible. He makes bells and uh, yeah, he's even got, amazing. he's even got one like this. That's like a double sided where <laughs> yeah. there's forks on both ends. So you're getting that, like he tunes them so one the fork on one side and the other side create a fifth it's crazy stuff he is the thor of tuning for sure <laughs> and um, it looks like it'd be an excellent self-defense uh, weapon as well <laughs> in a pinch yeah <laughs> never had to use it that way but it's uh, it's a pretty hefty chunk of metal that's for sure now is that a do you know awesome. is that a steel or aluminum i imagine it's some kind of alloy that probably some aluminum i people ask that all the time i don't know what the composition is of that guy's forks uh, maybe he puts it on his website i've never really meant gone and looked it up it's interesting but. to think of the qualitative aspects of that right and like what if you had silver or, or gold fork and i think that's why literally they had gold forks back i have um yeah i have a set of crystal forks i would love that Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been, I've, that's something I want to get next to some crystal forks. The aluminum thing though, you know, a lot of the, I like Omnivos uh, for their mm-hmm. forks and yep. Medivive oh, is have. good. And so a lot of these less expensive, but still quite effective forks tend to be made out of like an aluminum alloy. And I've had people before kind of push against that, like, well, aluminum has all these problems with it. And how could you use aluminum in any kind of helpful way? But I don't have an answer for that other than it is what it is. They work like the they work. The sound they work. works. In my regular work, I have a, a many sets of uh, these are just regular board uh, steel. You know, it's the type that you'd use for tuning a piano or something. My work's a little different because it correlates with uh, acupuncture. But um, but yeah, you're right. They all work. And I have uh, I have a whole set of Eileen's. I have my uh, conventional ones that I've used for years, you know, in my acupuncture work, I've got the crystal forks. Um, uh, yeah, I, you know, we should uh, have you back and we'll just like deep dive into nothing but sound and all the different ways to do that. Awesome. I look I forward we, to that one. We, we kind of skirted around it a lot today. And, and I think we talked about a lot of good things, but we can get, you know, really specific. That would be fun. You'd be yeah. teaching me some stuff, I think, <laughs> which I would love. I, yeah, let's do it. I, I do this because I learn from everybody I talk to here. So uh, you guys it, can come back over to my discussion. house and uh, talk. Have Bear really t- teach us about sound? I would love that. Do another vibrant. Oh yeah, those are always fun, and uh, we'll have you <laughs> have you back. The title will be "Get Forked by Chance." Um, <laughs> that was uh, that was the the T-shirt branding uh idea in, in chat today that kept getting repeated <laughs> you gotta have that shirt man get forked by chance 
Hey, this has been so fun, man. Um, always a pleasure. And yeah, uh, we'd love to come back on. And you should probably have Bear come on and do an interverse where you guys just go deep into sound because that one I think could be uh, really cool and tie that into um, also radiesthesia. I know you already, Bear, you went on there and kind of did a show about that, but or Vibrant would be perfect too. So I would like that actually. I, you know, when Bear came on, I was like, I had a lot of, I had some regret over it because I felt like I wasn't like mentally sharp and energetic for that episode and didn't do honor to the great Dr. Lando. So I'd love to do it another round. <laughs> it's been a while. Cool. No, I, awesome. I, had a, I had a great time talking to you on that. It was, it, it went perfect. I didn't notice anything otherwise. That's good. <laughs> you were always hardest on yourself, right? Uh, that is so true. <laughs> Absolutely. So true. Oh, oh, I have, there, there's so many episodes that we do. Sometimes they're just, right on otherwise you know you're thinking of what you should have said or why the hell did i say that or i was just out of it or whatever you know it's like anything else like on any given in sports you know some days you're just in the zone some days you're not our, our most popular watched video i we almost didn't put out because i hated my performance on it and we were debating internally let's just not even put it out and it's got like sixty thousand. i don't know how many views on it the bouchon first pasteur one which led <laughs> to andrew kaufman discovering all the whole thing and everything so have grace not only for your bro fellow brothers and sisters but most importantly for yourself right guys um forgiveness is an extremely powerful tool extremely powerful um Okay, guys. Wow. What an amazing chat. Please go over to Interverse. Uh, the Actually, your your link's down in the show notes below, but give give the audience that's listening chance the best place to find you and follow you. My website, interversepodcast.com is going to have links to everything, but in terms of where they can tune in to the content, we have a good YouTube presence, always a a lively group of chatters there, many of familiar names who are in the live chat for your streams. I'm on Rockfin as well. And, uh, you know, Odyssey as well, BitChute, but really Rockfin and YouTube are the way to go. If you're already a premium member at Rockfin, you can get the extended second hour of the Interverse episodes. The Wednesday night Vibrant live streams are always free for the whole two or three hours. And yeah, there's, you know, the iTunes podcast app or Google play or wherever Spotify, wherever you might listen to audio shows, you can find my content there also. And appreciate all the support. Appreciate all the really great people in the chat today. It's been fun to watch everyone's responses and a, a great highlight life experience to come on Alpha Vedic. I love your guys' show. So thank you so much for having me. It's uh, been a chance. great time. Thanks. Thanks for being with us. And uh, you, you're doing awesome work. And I'd really encourage everybody to get over there to Interverse. It's one of my favorites. You know, just Chance has uh, a very uh, eloquent way of articulating and, uh, you know, really scratching below the surface. So thanks. Keep it up. Yeah. Shout out to all the Interverse peeps um, and everybody, Gabriel, Gordy, um, uh, Garza, um, all you guys over there. Um, all the G's. What's all the, yeah, all the G's, man. Like uh, it's like going to school in a fun way on Wednesdays, especially you guys are really tapping into true, true academia in a way that the, the mainstream academia, of course, it doesn't. So if you guys are really interested in like history and the true sciences and understanding where we come from and how it all connects to the, the you know, symbolism and the stars and everything, 
it's really fun. And it's a really fun group of people in there that are just open to discovery. And also you guys are all- My community is more researchers than content consumers, like fellow researchers. I love that. Everyone's so awesome. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, it's good when in your chat, like everybody is a, is an admin or a moderator in your chat. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, man. Well, Hey, thanks so much guys. Please give us a thumbs up, share with your friends and family that helps get the show out uh, as far as, as you can, you know, let's, you know, these are the kind of shows that I think are really enlightening and also inspiring for people to listen to that haven't heard this kind of stuff before. So please share with maybe that friend or family member that, is maybe you consider quote unquote normie. I think these are the kind of ones that be like, oh yeah, this stuff makes sense. Um, and uh, you can go to alphavedic.com to find out all about us. If you are new to us, A-L-F-A-V-E-D-I-C.com or our telegram t.me forward slash alphavedic and Patreon at patreon.com forward slash alphavedic. We love you. We'll see you next Thursday, 10 a.m. with the great James Tunney. That's going to be a very fun, fun show. And you all have a great weekend. Get outside, get your feet in the dirt, go plant something, go for a hike. Show Mother Nature some love. She'll show it right back and teach you something. Love you. See you guys.